Welcome to Waste Not and Feed Me, the podcast of Lost and Tisha's Family Kitchen. In today's episode, we have the pleasure to talk to Malik Yakini. He is the executive director of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. Please enjoy. Welcome to Waste Not and Feed the Need, the podcast for Los Suspicious Family of the Kitchen. My name is Mauricio Cordova. I am here with Lauren Capitello, our co-host. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Lauren. How are you? Hi, Mauricio. Good morning. Good morning. Or afternoon yeah. or evening, I guess, whenever, <laughs> whenever anyone's listening, so... Yes, exactly. Uh, we do have followers in other in other countries, which is pretty exciting. Um, today, we have the pleasure to talk to Malik Giacchini, Executive Director of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. Good morning, Malik. Welcome. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So kind of you to take some time. I know you're a busy guy, and you mentioned you're getting ready to go to Africa, I think, for a conference, right, I believe? Well, I actually got back a week ago yesterday. I was in Cameroon, uh, Central Africa for a week for the biennial conference of the African, the Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I was, I knew you were coming or going. <laughs> uh, could you please do us, uh, you know, the, the pleasure to tell us about yourself, how you got into what you're doing and about the Detroit Black Community Food uh, Security Network, please. Okay, I'm a native Detroiter. I'm 66 years old, and so I came of age in the the late 1960s, uh, which was a very turbulent time in American society, and particularly uh, for Black people, it was a significant time because we were exploring both our identity, our culture, our relationship to the rest of American society, and our relationship to the rest of the African uh, diaspora, the African continent and the African diaspora. And so, again, I came of age during that time period and began to really question uh, lots of the relationships that existed in American society and question the ideas of justice and equity and things like that. And so those principles have really guided my work for all of my adult life. Uh, Since uh, 2000, Uh, 10, I've served as executive director of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, a nonprofit organization that I helped to found in 2006. Um, And we do several things in the city of Detroit. We operate D-Town Farm, which is a seven acre farm that uses organic uh, strategies to grow about 40 different fruits, vegetables and herbs that we then sell at farmers markets and at a farm stand in front of our farm on uh, weekends between June and October. We also operate a youth program called the Food Warriors Youth Development Program that teaches young people between the ages of seven and 12 how to build and maintain raised bed gardens, how to harvest that food, how to prepare it in healthy ways. And they also learn food justice and food sovereignty concepts. And The big thing that we're working on right now is the Detroit Food Commons, which is a new 31,000 square foot building that we're building right in the center of Detroit that will house the Detroit People's Food Co-op, a cooperatively owned grocery store that we have initiated and still provide some of the leadership to, although the co-op has its own board now and stands on its own legs, but we still provide a supportive role to the Detroit People's Food Co-op. And on the second floor of the building, we'll have four 
shared use kitchens that can be rented out by food entrepreneurs of various scales. We'll have a 3,000 square foot community meeting space that can be used for conferences, lectures, film screenings, and the like. And so we are uh, looking forward with great anticipation to the opening of the Detroit Food Commons in the fall of 2023. Wow, congratulations. That is fantastic. Wow. Hey, before we jump into other topics, I see a lot of uh, instruments behind you. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, I'm a musician. <laughs> I've been a musician for many years. I play guitar. And I lead a band in Detroit called Mollywop. In fact, you probably see the the URL address for my band, which is strategically placed on a uh, a chair near near my screen. So I decided <laughs> while I'm on Zoom calls, I might as well promote my band too. Uh, we play uh, music that I would say is conscious music, music that is designed to give people a greater sense of self, a greater sense of their own capacity, and also to move them to to fight and to struggle for a much more just society. Awesome, that's fantastic. Uh, we're probably gonna need to check it out. And are you are you streaming like in Spotify or yeah, iTunes? We're on all the, Spotify, all we're on iTunes, we're on all the, all the, uh, all the, the ways that people obtain music these days. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Lauren, what do you have for, uh, for Malik? Yeah, I, I was interested in um, sort of learning about um, any upcoming projects or any uh, kind of on ongoing projects that are, are going on. I know you mentioned that the construction is going to be uh, completed in next fall. Um, I don't know. I was just, just wondering if uh, kind of what else is what else is going on? Well, really, those are the main things. Those, But those things, okay. each one of them are pretty huge things. Maybe I'll go yeah. into a bit more detail and i'll start sure. with the detroit food commons the building that i mentioned that we're building uh, so um there detroit is a city of about uh 745,000 people 80 percent of whom are african-americans but there is no african-american owned grocery store in the city of detroit and so what we find is that we have an extractive economy when it comes to the food economy in most of the city of Detroit. Uh, other ethnic groups come into the majority black community, open grocery stores, basically hire their own relatives and then extract those profits that they make so they don't circulate within our community to create community empowerment, community wealth and community ownership. And so uh, the co-op model we think is the best model for pushing back against that extractive economy. So this project really started with our desire to start a food co-op. And we started this actually this journey in 2010. So we've been working on this for 12 years now. Wow. Uh, eventually, as we started looking for potential locations to locate the food co-op, and also as we refined our vision that this building would be more than a food co-op, but also would include kitchens and a community meeting space, it became apparent that we would have to build a building, that no existing buildings uh, could serve all of the functions that we needed served within this building. And so uh, it, it's been a very long journey, both identifying the property to build this on within the neighborhood we want to build it on. In fact, we're on the main street of Detroit, uh, and so we have really some prime real estate. But identifying that real estate and getting the $21.6 million in funding needed to build this building has been a tremendous 
journey. And so, again, the components of the Detroit Food Commons will be this cooperatively owned grocery store, the Detroit Food Commons, which currently has more than 1,690 member owners. And our goal is to have at least 2,000 by the time we open the doors next year. Uh, but then also, as I mentioned, we'll have four kitchens on the second floor, two larger kitchens, which will be identical, except one of the kitchens has baking equipment and two smaller kitchens, which will be identical, except one of the kitchens has dehydration equipment. And so we're looking um, for this building, the Detroit Food Commons, to be a hub of activity related to building food sovereignty in the city of Detroit. We'll have a, a number of lectures and demonstrations related to the food system that will happen on the second floor in the community meeting hall. We also will be renting the halls out for banquets and for wedding receptions and graduations and the like. So it's been a tremendous project. There's been a tremendous amount of community uh, engagement and community organizing involved in getting us to this point. Uh, there's been a tremendous amount of community engagement and organizing involved in recruiting member owners for the food co-op. And there's a tremendous amount of enthusiasm in the city of Detroit, both by residents and by people in the city government and by people involved in the food movement uh, as we anticipate the opening of the Detroit Food Commons next October. Wow, that's uh, that's wow. a lot going on. Yeah, definitely. You know, so you're doing a lot of work in Detroit, which is fantastic. But are you cooperating with other other organizations nationally or internationally? I believe you're working with some organizations in Canada. What about the U.S.? Is there a national uh, organization or something that you work with in different cities? Because you know we know Detroit is not the only uh, city that has the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, so can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? I think you mentioned something when we had a chance to to hear you sure. at uh, on my class, uh, uh, but you know, a month ago. So yeah. Yes, I'm also one of the co-founders of the National Black Food and Justice Alliance. And let, let me just clarify that we um, have a position that we are unapologetically working for black food sovereignty. Now, that that's not to say that we operate in a bubble. We understand that within American society that many ethnic groups are underserved or misserved by the food system, uh, particularly mm -hmm. our, our Latinx brothers and sisters, and indigenous folks. Um, so we stand in solidarity and we work consciously to build bridges, but we also make no apology about primarily focusing our work on organizing among African-Americans because we have, although we share many things in common with other ethnic groups, there are some things that are particular to the experience of people of African descent in the United States. One of those things is that many black people associate agricultural work with slavery because of our history, because of the history of enslavement and sharecropping in this country. And so there is a widespread um, kind of shying away from agriculture because of this negative association related to these systems that exploited our labor in order to create white wealth. And so reframing of agricultural work as an act of self-determination is an important part of the work that we do. Mm -hmm. And this is something that only we can only do it. We we're the only ones that can do this in our community. Others can't come in and do this with us, but we are conscious to, to make alliances and to build bridges uh, with other oppressed communities as we're doing this work. For example, 
one of the things that we do in Detroit is our organization has partnered with two other organizations in Detroit, uh, one called uh, Keep Growing Detroit and one called Oakland Avenue Farm to run what's called the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund, a fund that was created two years ago in order to grant money to farmers in Detroit, black farmers who are trying to buy the land that they're uh, they're farming on. So this year, uh, one of the things that was done is there was um, money allocated to go to indigenous farmers in Detroit. So although, again, we're primarily focused on black folks doing this work, we also understand that indigenous folks and Latinx folks uh, in the United States uh, also are underserved and misserved by the food system and by society in general. And so we're making efforts to link uh, indigenous folks and Latinx folks with, uh, with, the, with our efforts to move black folks forward. Wow. Um, wow. No, <laughs> you know, you mentioned something a minute ago that was very interesting. And I haven't, unfortunately, sadly thought about that a lot of uh, African-American uh, uh, citizens or residents of the United States don't want to do don't want to work in farms because it brings back bad memories. It makes, you know, and I haven't ever really thought about it that way. And that is so true. That's something that probably uh, you mentioned the stigma that it needs to be maybe overcome somehow because there's opportunity for for jobs and for growth and a lot of things in, in agriculture especially now that our farming system can continue getting smaller and smaller i mean the big corporations are taking over or trying to take over but there's still a lot of land out there that could be uh, farmed by uh, smaller farmers you know particularly for farmer markets and stuff like that the organic local uh uh, 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 market is big. I mean, it's available out there. So th and thank you for sharing that. I've never really thought about it that, uh, uh, that way. So, yeah. You, you know, let me say this though. Interestingly, yeah. um, there's an organization in uh, the, the Oakland Bay area, the San Francisco Bay area called Podero. Mm -hmm. And uh, they came and visited with us um, uh, five or six years ago. And I was mm -hmm. sharing the same story about how many African-Americans have a negative view about agriculture. And a sister with Podero, who was born in Mexico, but lives in the Bay Area now, said, wow, this is almost the same as something I've experienced. And she began to tell me how her grandmother, who grew up farming, really discouraged her from mm -hmm. doing farming, uh, again, because of the kind of harsh conditions and the exploitation that existed. So while this uh, is unique in one way to people of African descent in the Western Hemisphere. There are also some more general lessons that can be extracted from it that apply to other ethnic groups as well, who have been in many ways the backbone of the American food system uh, through the exploitation of their labor. This is this is a lot has a lot deeper roots than you know I I, I kind of thought about. And thank you for sharing all these points of views because there's things that. We take it for granted because we don't, well, we don't know about him or we don't think about him that way uh, because we're coming from different ethnicity groups and and so forth. But definitely, I, I can I can relate to that on, on that sense. Yeah. If I, if I can have uh, one more one more piece yeah, to this discussion, yeah. broaden a bit. Uh, and so, you know, we have this particular experience related to how the Western Hemisphere was developed and colonialization mm -hmm. and slavery, but also there's this global phenomenon where all over the planet. Rural life is diminished. It's seen as being 
not as uh not as not as appealing mm-hmm. not as hip not as cool is urban life so throughout the yeah. planet you have people leaving rural areas where they have the opportunity to do agriculture because of the lure of cities mm-hmm. and also because of the way global capitalism works we tend to see more capital and thus more jobs concentrated in cities and so you have the particular experience of black people in the western hemisphere and also some latinx folks in the western hemisphere who's who were either enslaved their ancestors were either enslaved or their labor was exploited but then you have this global experience which uh centers urban life and diminishes the value of rural life and has people wanting to leave the countryside to come into cities. So both of these things are impacting uh, uh, Black folks in the United States, both our particular experience and also this global phenomenon. Wow. Uh, Lauren, what are your thoughts about (laughs) all everything you just learned? Yeah. I know. I I, I was thinking also about you know, what you had mentioned earlier about um, the uh, uh, D-Town farm. I was interested in kind of hearing more about that. Is that more of like a youth-led farm or um, is it uh, like what are kind of the, the, uh, um, um, yeah, I guess I'm just wondering if it, just wanting to learn more about that. We have uh, usually about six employees that work at the farm. We have a manager. We have two full-time farmers and we have two part-time farmers. And then we have a person who is the farm grounds and maintenance manager. And then we rely heavily on community volunteers who come out on Saturdays and Sundays and work with us to uh, to do the work of moving the farm forward. And so really what we're doing at D-Town Farm is demonstrating and modeling how urban agriculture can occur in a large urban city. We're modeling how underutilized land in a place like Detroit can be used for productive purposes. And let me say this about Detroit. Detroit is unique in that it's a large city. It's 139 square miles, but about one third of the city is vacant land, land that human beings are not using for housing or for commercial businesses. And that largely was prompted by the white flight that occurred beginning in the 1950s and reaching a fever pace in the 1960s after the 1967 rebellion or so-called riot in the city of Detroit. You had people who identified themselves as white leaving Detroit in droves. And as they left, uh, many times they, uh, they left blight behind properties that they didn't maintain. Uh, but also this exodus of people from the city of Detroit uh, diminish the tax base because those people who were living mm-hmm. in Detroit and, left and moved to the suburbs mm-hmm. took their taxes with them. Or people who owned and operated businesses in Detroit as they left Detroit and moved into the suburbs, that tax money also left with them. And so it left Detroit in a, a situation which is uh, where, where Detroit has been struggling financially for uh, for a number of years. And so th- this is kind of the context that we're we're operating within. So what we're attempting to do in part is to demonstrate how much of this unused land in the city of Detroit can be put to productive use, both to create employment, to create greater access to high quality nutrient dense foods, and also to begin to contribute to a more localized food economy. So question with that, if one person or somebody wanted to kind of get started with something similar, 
on their community, uh, you know, <clears throat> county type of thing. How would they go by it? What would you recommend? What would be your uh, your thoughts about somebody who wants to get involved or, or if they want to reach out to you and get involved on your initiatives and from that and maybe bring it to the community? How would how would uh, that would work or how would it look like? The first thing I would suggest is that uh, the basis of any uh, effort like uh, a farm or a food co-op or an effort to reform the food system, the basis of it has to be people who have a similar vision and who have similar values. And so the first thing I think is to galvanize a core group of five to 10 people who want to see the same thing happen. And that's more important than making connections with the state or the county or however you might go about obtaining land or trying to get money. What's most important is to galvanize your core group and to make sure that you have a similar vision and similar values. If you don't do that initially, that's going to cause great confusion as you begin to move forward in the work. But after you've galvanized that core group, I would suggest linking up with other people who have experience. In almost any place in the United States now, you have people who are involved in the food movement, people who are operating small-scale farms, people who are operating farmers markets, people who are working on food policy, people who are trying to have more just distribution of food on the retail level. So nobody has to start from scratch. Uh, if you're starting something, you can learn from the experience of people who are doing that. And the best experience to learn from is people in your own locale. So while I certainly am willing to advise and to share information with people wherever they may be, there's a wealth of information right where you are. And so we always want to affirm that, that the solutions to the problems faced by any local community exist within that community. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily have to go outside of the community. There's leadership and expertise in every community. So seeking that out and lifting up that leadership and experience is tremendously important. Thank you. You know, uh, I met, I asked you before, you know, we, Nancy Fishman, which uh, founded uh, Forgotten Harvest in Detroit, also founded, uh, or was part of the uh, group that founded of, uh, the a la carte food recovery program. So we had the opportunity to work with with Nancy and, and take one of her programs, and now it's uh, something that we we really you know enjoy being able to have because it gives us the ability to food recover food, do food recovery, which is something that is starting to grow a lot in the Bay Area. Um, Tell us a little bit about your experience with, you know, Forgotten Harvest and some, some of the food banks and how do you partner with them and uh, utilize that to continue growing? Yeah, so we've had a very cordial relationship with Forgotten Harvest for a number of years. And the relationship started in about 2013. Um, in fact, no, let me go back. The relationship started actually in 2009 when we started the Detroit Food Policy Council. And I didn't mention that as I was talking about the work of our organization, <laughs> things that we did. In 2008, we wrote the city of Detroit's food security policy. We got input from others, but we were the primary organization that led the creation of that. And we got that approved unanimously by the city council. And part of the food policy council called for the creation, I'm sorry, part of the food policy called for the creation of the Detroit Food Policy Council which I chaired for its first two years. We purposely put term limits in so that we would have a uh, new influx of leadership constantly. Mm -hmm. So I chaired it for the first two years from 2009 until 2011. And a person who was on the Food Policy Council representing the policy sector 
is a woman named Ann Jen, who is the policy coordinator for Forgotten Harvest. And so I really began our relationship with Forgotten Harvest. By about uh, 2013 or so, the relationship evolved where uh, we were getting raw materials for our compost operation at D-Town Farm from Forgotten Harvest. Two or three times a week, they would come to our farm with uh, a truck with food that no longer could be consumed by human beings, but was perfect Mm -hmm. for producing compost. And they would drop off at one time, maybe 10,000 pounds of rotting produce that for most people is useless garbage, but for us is used to produce this black gold that can produce very nutrient rich crops. And Mm -hmm. so we continue that relationship for a number of years until some flooding at the problem at the farm made it problematic for their trucks to access our, our compost area. And we had to discontinue that. And the flooding is a combination of both the kind of general climate change that we're seeing, but also our next door neighbor near our farm cut down about two acres of 100-year-old trees that were each up taking hundreds of gallons of water. And much of that water started flowing on our farm in the area where we were doing composting. So we had to discontinue that large-scale compost production. But our relationship with um, with Forgotten Harvest remained intact. In fact, the, uh, the recently resigned director of, of Forgotten Harvest, Kirk Mays, and he just, I think, resigned last week, um, was a friend of mine prior to becoming the CEO of Forgotten Harvest. And so we had a good relationship. And uh, last year, when a funding opportunity became available through Feeding America, Feeding America is a network of emergency food providers throughout the country, and Forgotten Harvest is part of that network. Uh, some funding became available for uh, community uh, food rescue operations who were partnering with another community organization. And so our organization, Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, partnered partnered with Forgotten Harvest for a $500,000 grant, which was awarded for uh, funding to help develop the Detroit Food Commons, the building that I mentioned earlier. So we get 85% of that grant of $425,000 and Forgotten Harvest gets 15%, about $75,000. And we are continuing to partner on that grant. And we expect to partner next year for an additional $250,000, which is again available for food rescue operations that are partnering with another community organization. So we have a very uh, cordial and collegial relationship with Forgotten <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, like I said, we, that's you know, awesome. we, it's such a small world. And that's where, you know, uh, when we were, had a chance to hear you uh, talk and everything else, uh, you know, we realized that there's a connection. How, you know, uh, folks that are related to each other in some sort of way or have crossed paths are doing great work in different areas. And like I said, uh, Dr. Fishman, you know, started for Garden Harvest. And then when he came to the Bay Area, decided that we needed more food rescue organizations. And so she started working with the uh, steering committee coming out of Santa Clara County. And that's where they founded uh, uh, a la carte. And then okay. uh, three and a half years ago, we we uh, merged into Los of Fishes and, uh, and gave us that extra when they, the, a new program. Before that, we were just like a, a, a soup kitchen on steroids. We were just cooking, you know, 3,000, 4,000 meals and distributing to 25 or 30 locations throughout the, uh, throughout the 
Silicon Valley area. So anyhow, just kind of wanted to, you know, kind of, it's such a small world and everything's connected. And that's the fun part about meeting people and understanding uh, this kind of a, a connectivity of ideas and, and movement and stuff. So um, Lauren, what do you else you have for, for Malik? Yeah, I mean, as as far as how how can people get connected? I know that there's a website. Is there any other social media where people can uh, kind of get connected and learn more? Yeah, absolutely. So we're on IG or Instagram. Um, okay. And we're there under uh, both uh, D-Town Farm, which is the name of our farm, and um, DBCFSN, the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. <laughs> Uh, we are on Facebook, um, and we have both a, a public group for Detroit Black Community Food Security Ni Network, and we have a private group for Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. We have a page for D-Town Farm, and so we're pretty easy to access on both Facebook and IG. Uh, we have a Twitter account. We don't use it too often, frankly, and yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we're not doing Snapchat um, but uh, IG, Instagram, and Facebook are the main ways that people can access us on social media. Yeah, and that, uh, that information, all the links, will be uh, in the episode. So you'll be able to click on them right below uh, the episode and have all those links and also Malik's uh, bio, bio and a bunch of other information. So we will be able to, to have that available for our listeners. Uh, you know, <clears throat> it, it's, it's been great to learn from you and listen to you. Is there any last, uh, any words of advice that you have for just a normal uh, everyday person that what's the little thing that they can do in the community to help this kind of movement or do their part? I mean, not everybody has the time or the ability to do, you know, the work you do. Thank you so much for what you do. Definitely. It's fantastic. And, and all the, all the folks, citizens that you help, they, they, you probably need a statue because you're doing some fantastic stuff. They got to honor you in some ways. You do more than other people and you're doing it from the bottom of your heart. And that's something that a lot of folks don't understand that when we get into nonprofit or rate or doing these kind of things, you know, economic uh, uh, reward is not there. It's about be able to share and give and, and, and help yes. your fellow uh, uh, person, you know, and, uh, and that's something that everybody writes a check and they feel good. They volunteer here and there. But when you're doing this full time, uh, and you're passionate about it. It's a, it's a different animal. It's definitely something that is, is important. So with that in mind, how do people can get involved a little bit? What are the little things that they, maybe they can do every day on their home or, or the community? What are your thoughts? So, you know, the thing is that most people don't really think about a food system when they eat. They think about, I need to go buy some food. I'm going to prepare it and I'm going to eat. I, I, I want to like the way it tastes and I want mm -hmm. to feel a sense of fullness. But they're not thinking about the system that provides all of that food from the seed all the way till the time it, it ends up on your stove. And so one of the things that people can do is to begin to educate themselves about the different steps in the process and who actually is involved in producing the food. And then to realize that every time that you bend your elbow to put a fork in your mouth, you're really making a political act. And so we would ask that people be more conscious about the foods that they consume and to the extent that they're able to begin to shift their buying power from big ag, from the kind of corporations that uh, produce much of the food that, uh, that we consume and to see how they can begin to support small 
local growers so that we're shifting the power within the food system. And so that means, you know, maybe finding out where farmers markets are in their locale and figuring out how they can spend a percentage of their food money at farmers markets with local growers, but also thinking about the ethics of, of food, you know, thinking about uh, food that is grown, uh, that provides fair wages for workers. Uh, you know, many times we use the term fair trade when we think about food that's coming to us in internationally, you know, and making sure that we make an effort to support uh, efforts to create a more just and equitable food system. And to the extent that we're able to, you know, and, and it's very difficult because the corporate structure has a stranglehold almost on the food system. But to the extent that we're able to making conscious decisions to pull our dollars away from that system and to invest in a system which is creating a more just and equitable food system would be one of the things that people can do. Now, part of that is really changing our food habits because the current corporate food system makes tremendous amounts of profit based on us buying things that we really don't need. And in fact, mm -hmm. uh, Michael Pollan has written quite a bit in his uh, books about the food system, about grocery stores and how if you go into a grocery store, the outer, uh, the, per the perimeter of the store is the, where most of the whole foods are contained, the produce, the dairy products, the meats, and things like that. But it's in those inner aisles where you have foods that are highly processed, that have lots of preservatives, that have lots of aggregated ingredients. That's where the most of the money is made in the food system. And so thinking about how we pull away from those kind of super uber processed foods and uh, focus more on whole foods that promote health as opposed to foods that are engineered to have the maximum shelf life and thus give the maximum profit to corporations. So just beginning to shift, you know, slowly, mm -hmm. you know, it's never good to make drastic changes uh, uh, in a short period of time. But, you know, thinking about how maybe there's one or two items that you might eliminate from your diet and replace it with more whole foods in, in order to, again, shift power within the food system. But also those whole foods promote optimal health. And so, you know, we have a, a health crisis in this country, which is driven at least in part by the consumption of foods that are, are highly processed foods and are not nutrient-dense foods. Correct. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing that we, we need to do more is some more awareness campaigns like this of, of this kind of topic. <clears throat> but it's not, it's not the, the most popular thing that people want to do, especially the ones that I want to get reelected and reelected. Right. Yeah. They're going with the money is. And unfortunately, maybe they're not doing the, uh, the right thing uh, to help, you know, and to put the right message out there, something or at least, you know, a, a different message. We keep hearing the same one over and over. So. It's interesting. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah. put people over profit, um, mm -hmm. and so you know, for me, at, at its core, this work is really a spiritual work, mm -hmm. because what it does is it values human life, and yep. it also values the life of the planet. It values the other animals and plants that we inhabit the planet with. Those things have to be more important than dollars and cents, than profit, and so we have to, to reorient our mind, reorient our minds so that we're really centering life and all that goes with life and not centering dollars and profit. And so as we begin to make that shift, 
then our our actions will shift and our communities will begin to shift. But the core of it is really seeing every human being as being valuable, seeing every human being as a manifestation of the divine. Mm-hmm. And that the things, you know, the, the basic things we were all taught, like the golden rule that we should want for others, what we want for ourselves, because we should see each other as an extension of ourselves. I think that kind of shift is the most important shift that we can make. And as we begin to see that shift take place, we'll see shifts not only in the food system, but in the other systems in American society and global the global uh, community that are favoring profit over human beings. Thank you. Yes, definitely. I definitely agree. Uh, with everything you just said. And I guess we need to record that little part and just repeat it over and over because it's very, very important. So um, so before we uh, wrap up the the, the show, uh, Lauren, you have any last words, anything you want to share? Uh, Malik, thank you for <laughs> your time. Thank you for, um, you know, taking the time to uh, be on our podcast and um, just, you know, um talk to us about everything thank you thank you it's a pleasure thank you so uh you know malik thank you very much again i think we might need to have you come back uh on our show in the future tell us about the uh that's you know once you open the the new building and the center and what's going on with that so we'll definitely have to ping you back in a few months and uh, you said it opens in the fall of next year correct october of next of October is our projected opening (laughs) All right, so we will make sure that we check our calendars and send you an email around November of next year and uh, put you back into the show and uh, let us know how that went because definitely we want to we wanna hear back about all the success and everything else. I'm very yeah. excited to see that. And, you know, um, I have to make a trip to, uh, to Detroit. There's a few places that I need to come see now that are uh, food-related <laughs> and uh, things that I'm learning. So that's uh, my bucket list is starting to change a little bit. So... <laughs> Definitely have to do that. So any last words, uh, Malika, anything that you want to tell the audience before we wrap up? Yes, I would say that, um, you know, just building on the theme I just talked about before about valuing human life and valuing life in general. uh, One of the things that racism does or this kind of global system that uh, that centers and prioritizes people who consider themselves to be white is it suppresses the indigenous knowledge of people throughout the world. And so I would really urge people to value and to study uh, indigenous cultures, um, you know, uh, folks who are from uh, countries in Central or South America should study the practices and the value systems of indigenous folks. Uh, Folks who are of African descent should study uh, the, the practices and cultures of Africa and the Caribbean. Um, so on and so forth, because it's within those cultures that much of the wisdom is contained that mm-hmm. we will need to remake ourselves and to remake the world. Yeah. One of the negative side effects of this global system of white supremacy is the suppression of these indigenous cultures and the wisdom which is contained within them. It's my view that if humanity is to be saved, that the answers to save humanity lie within the wisdom of traditional cultures. And so studying uh, those cultures and uh, lifting up that wisdom and lifting up the elders within our community is of the utmost importance. Thank you. 
Appreciate it. Well, <clears throat> with that, we're going to wrap up today's episode. I hope uh, our audience uh, learned as much as we did. Today was enlightening. Thank you so much for sharing your, your story and everything you're doing, Malik. Really appreciate it. We do want to thank, uh, <laughs> sorry, we do want to thank Cali PA, which is a sponsor for this program. Without their support, we would not be able to to put it up to you know, produce it. Thank you very much, Cali PA, for your support. And with that, uh, we'll talk to everybody soon. Thank you very much. Have a great rest of your day, wherever you are. And uh, until next time, ciao.